On this episode, I'm in the room with author Jonathan Merritt. Hey friends, welcome to In The Room, episode number 76. I am your host, Ryan Hughley. For those of you who may be joining me for the first time, I am the founding and lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the author of Eight Hours or Less, Writing Faithful Sermons Faster. In the Room is my opportunity to have interesting conversations with authors, artists, professors, and pastors in order to learn more about virtually every topic you can imagine, all while giving you the chance to listen in. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can also like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash itrpodcast. Well, today I'm talking with author Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan is one of our most prolific writers on the topics of faith and culture and politics. He's the author of uh, four books with a new one in the works. His last book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, explores the disconnect that exists between the sacred words that professing Christians tend to use and our culture's almost complete misunderstanding from what any of them actually mean. And so it's a book that's about how to better engage in spiritual conversations, and I just got to tell you, it is beautifully written. Now, in addition to books, Jonathan has published, listen to this, more than 3,500 articles in respected outlets. I don't even think I have read 3,500 articles. He has been published in The Atlantic, The New York Times, USA Today, BuzzFeed, The Washington Post, and Christianity Today. He has also appeared on ABC World News, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, NPR, PBS, and CBS's 60 Minutes. I'm exhausted just listing all of that. It's really impressive. And and honestly, because of all this, I was a little anxious at the start of this conversation. Jonathan is extremely thoughtful. You may not agree with him on every single point, but what I appreciate most about him is that he's genuinely thought through what he believes and why. And, And a lot of people just don't do that anymore. I had planned to cover a very large section of ground with him, but we ended up spending the bulk of our time discussing his own experience and the experience of so many involving the construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction of faith and worldview. This is genuinely one of the most interesting and engaging conversations I think I've ever had to date, and I really think you're going to enjoy listening. So once again, it's a pleasure to invite you in the room for my conversation with Jonathan Merritt. So most people know you, Jonathan, as uh, an author and a writer in a lot of different mediums. So tell me a little bit about where your passion for writing started and uh, when you decided that could be an actual avenue that you pursue. You know, I graduated, my my undergrad uh, degree was in biology and chemistry, and I had intended to go to medical school. Yeah. So I graduated from college. I was working at a Fortune 500 chemical company, um, working on a home care cleaning products line. And about eight months in, I had a very sort of evangelical calling moment. Yeah, I was sitting in my cubicle looking out over Interstate 85, and I just felt a capital V voice inside me say, you're going to write. Hmm. And it was like I just knew I was going to be a writer. And that didn't make much sense to me because one, I had invested a lot of money yeah. 
into preparing for medical school, taking the tests. Uh, I'd done some interviews and uh, it sort of had been the center of my identity okay. for a long, long time. And I didn't know any writers. I didn't know. I mean, I came home and I told my, I, I was living with my parents at the time and I said, um, I think I'm going to be a religion writer. And they're like, that's not a thing. And I was like, I think it's a thing. And they're like, I don't think that's exactly a thing. And I was like, no, I, I'm going to do it. So I, um, I left that job, uh, started working at a cell phone store and just at night reading everything I could on writing yep. and ended up going back to graduate school, getting, um, some degrees in religion. And it came out of that. It wasn't something, I mean, looking back, you can say, I see the fingerprints yeah. of all of this in childhood, in adolescence, in college. You know, I remember writing for people or helping people with papers and they're like, gosh, you're good at this. But it was nothing that I ever wanted to do until that moment I was sitting there and I said, I, I was really miserable. Mm -hmm. I realized that I was, I was trying to be a doctor because I wanted to be wealthy and respected. Yeah. And um, of course, then I became a writer, which is gets you to none of those things. <laughs> right. um, but uh, <laughs> but I'm glad I'm glad I did it. And it's interesting, like looking back now, it all makes sense. But okay. I will tell you, at the time following that did not make sense to anyone in my life. Were people in your life encouraging of that, or for the most part, trying to keep you on the track you'd been on? I think they were confused. Okay. I, I don't know that they wanted to keep me on, on the track that I was on because I was able at that point to express how, how much disdain I had for it, how miserable I actually was. But I think they were like, look, here was a guy who had all this purpose yeah. and was sort of laser focused. I'm an Enneagram three. So I was okay. laser focused on being, uh, becoming a doctor and I made great grades and I'd knock that out. And they're like, it felt as if I was just having this kind of quarter life crisis Okay, that I had lost a sense of who I was and where I was going. And people, I think were really confused by that. Yeah. Well, speaking of, you mentioned your childhood a few minutes ago, where, where were you born? Where'd you grow up? I grew up outside of Atlanta. Okay. Um, I grew up in Georgia in suburban Atlanta. I mean, I was born in Louisville, Kentucky. My dad was doing a PhD there at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And yep. then we, we had a little stint in, um, in Mississippi, mm -hmm. where I lived for a couple of years when I was mostly too young to remember it. Okay. And, and uh, we moved to Georgia when I was, I think, three. Okay. Um, so I grew up until college. Uh, I was in Metro Atlanta. And it was a you know, it's an interesting place to be from. It was lovely in many ways, but it was also like a kind of quintessential suburban life. So I was bathed in, baptized in even, uh, the kind of consumerist, capitalist, conservative yeah. mentality of the American South. And that was how I was indoctrinated. And you could add, by the way, if you want a fourth C, Christianized. Sure. I grew up in a very Christian culture where Christianity was centered, white oh. Christianity was centered, conservative, white, evangelical yeah. Christianity was centered. And, and, I and, and Chick-fil-A. And, and Chick-fil-A. Chick yeah. So we have, I think, a fifth C in that whole thing. Ooh, that's, that's its own Chicken sandwiches. <laughs> yes. That one was not so bad. I was happy to be bathed in <laughs> okay. Chick-fil-A sauce. 
So what was your faith experience like then growing up? So your, I mean, your dad at one point was, I'm not Southern Baptist. I don't know the history super well, but at one point he was the president of the Southern Baptist convention. Am I, is that correct? So you grew up in a super Southern Baptist evangelical you're in Atlanta, which in some cases is like the buckle of the Bible belt. What, what was, was that a positive for you? Was it a mixture of good and bad? How did that shape you growing up in that? You know, it's a, it's a question that I get a lot. I mean, my dad was and is a televangelist mm-hmm. on TBN and has a mega church and, and did growing up. And when people ask like, what was that like? It sort of assumes it sort of assumes that you have knowledge of what something else would be like. Sure. You know, it's all, you know, uh, it's, it's, it, I don't know um, anything else. I think in many ways it was, I, I received a lot of gifts. Um, you know, I live now at an Episcopal seminary and people here are shocked. People who are studying for the priesthood, people, you know, who, who are professional Christians in their own right. Mm-hmm are shocked. They'll say, we cannot believe you know the Bible so well. Yeah. And that's a real gift. Uh, that was a gift. I, I grew up in a, in a tradition that took spirituality seriously, that believed that, uh, that, that, um, the gospel of Jesus Christ meant something. It said something, it demanded something Mm -hmm. of your life. Um, in, in many cases, I think that that theology was less than helpful, uh, or some cases I think I can say without being bombastic that it was toxic. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I've moved away from that a bit. Um, you know, Richard Rohr talks a lot about this, um, this, this need for rules, this need for black and white Uh early in life. Uh, with the intent that eventually you you move beyond it, you grow beyond it, and so it, it's it's not that it's juvenile or it's stupid or it's evil, but that in some ways it's a necessary step to something else. Mm-hmm. And so I've learned to to think about that as a part of me that will always be a part of me, and and that will that is that is my heritage, and I'm not ashamed of it. But um, I'm finding God in other places now. Yeah, I'm I'm very interested in that because there's there's definitely in my own life there's been I grew up in a Christian home, but I have a pretty diverse denominational background. Um, so I think the first church we went to was Methodist. And then my mom remarried when I was five and we were going to an assemblies of God church on Sunday nights, but he was seventh day Adventist. And so we were doing that on Saturday and then kind of grew up in Pentecostal ism and then seeker, and then have been a part of the the young reformed thing for a while. So just kind of all over the place. So I've had some, I've experienced some sort of big rock changes like I've evolution or change in my convictions on some big rock theological issues. Uh-huh. And so I'm always curious how much of that is it, if it's, if that is in how I'm, I'm always curious how much of that is reactionary to something negative that we experience and how much of it is really informed by the by like for me, I think I know that some of it for me was uh, definitely studying scripture further and being convicted that I was wrong in some things that I had thought in the past. And some of it was, I was coming out of a super toxic experience 
with that was just saturated with this other thing. So when you think about the evolution you've kind of been on and are still on, is it is it both of those things? Has it been the study of scripture experience you've had? Is it is any part of it reaction to what has been toxic? Does that any of that make sense to you? Yeah. I think that there are I think that there are people who whose orientation toward their past can be um, reflective, mm-hmm. even critically reflective, without being reactionary. Yeah, and so uh, that's a good way to say to that. This, I, I, and these are generalizations. Yeah, but if you look there, there's two kinds of groups of people who grew up like I did. There are people that I would that are like me that I would consider to be post evangelical, mm-hmm. which, which is, is you can see the highway of life passing through evangelicalism and then moving to something else. Yeah. And then you have, um, ex-evangelicals and for ex-evangelicals, there's a kind of breaking, um, okay. and it's a bit more of a, of a reaction to, yeah. um, the negative things, mm-hmm. um, it, it, in a reflective approach, there is still an open and even full throated acknowledgement of the failings of the past. But there's also um, a, an effort to allow those acknowledgements to be expressed without becoming toxic, mm-hmm. without um, fomenting or fermenting into bitterness. And, and it's, a, and it's, a, a, um, it's a, a thin line, mm-hmm. right? The, sure. the distinctions are, are often um, small. Mm-hmm. But I think it's an important one. I, I am, um, I, I'm no longer evangelical, but I'm really, for the most part, not mad about it. Okay. Uh, I, I think that I have a lot of great friends who are evangelical. Now, you're asking another question, which is, I think, a question, an epistemological question. And it's a question that evangelicals ask, okay. which is, Wait, how much of this is rooted in the Bible? And the reason for that is, is because evangelicals, whether it's whether it's real or not, yeah. believe that they have a kind of deeply rooted biblical epistemology that uh-huh. the, you have to have a change because the Bible says so. Mm-hmm. Now, I would say about that a couple of things. One, I'm very evangelical in my metamorphosis. Um, it's always been rooted in the text. Okay. Um, to some degree, because the text matters to me. And at the same time, I want to acknowledge what, what uh, there's an Old Testament professor here calls the authority of experience. Yeah. Um, if you look back in Christian history, um, I guess you could tell it in, this, in a way that says everybody just one day decided to return to the Bible. Yeah. And that's why things change. That's why you have Protestantism. That's right. why you have, and, and that's a very, again, evangelical storytelling, yeah. which says, oh yeah, well, that's what Jesus believed. And we just decided one day to become what Jesus believed. Right. But the truth is, is that real life experiences rubbed up against each one of us or totally. generations of us that caused those changes. Uh, Christian Wyman, who's a poet and a theologian, says this. He says, whatever faith you emerge with at the end of your life is not is going to be not simply affected by that life, but intimately dependent upon it. Hmm. And so he says, if you believe at 50 what you believed at 15, then you have not lived or you've denied the reality of That's your good. life. Yeah. 
civil rights didn't happen because a Bible fell open and somebody read it. Right. It began because people looked around at the reality of their lives and said, this cannot be what the gospel of Jesus Christ demands of us. Right. And so um, is this change for me deeply rooted in, in, the, in the text? Absolutely. It's inextricably connected to it. Is it also deeply rooted in the experience of my life and the authority of that experience and what it says to me? Absolutely. I think that's been true for all Christians of all time. Yeah, I agree. I think that's really well said. I have to imagine that in the midst of that, you've had some uncomfortable conversations along the way with people that you've grown up with, whether it is parents or friends that are still very firmly rooted in evangelicalism. And so I'm just curious what that's been like for you, what advice you would give to people that are experiencing some amount of, and it doesn't even have to be a a shift from evangelicalism to post-evangelicalism, but that are just experiencing some sort of shift in the way that they think, read scripture, experience life, what advice would you give to people that are walking through a season like that and trying to manage relationships that are uncomfortable, maybe even feel very threatened by what it is people, what, what they're going through? Yeah. You know, I talk a lot about this in my last book. There, there are these kinds of three phases and, I, and I, there are different terms that various theologians use to describe these phases depending, depending on their tradition but it's the idea that there's a kind of orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Right. Um, N.T. Wright, the Anglican theologian, New Testament theologian, uses the metaphor of a suitcase. And so he talks about packing, unpacking, repacking, that there's a constant process of unpacking all of the terms and the theologies that, that, you've come to kind of put inside your personal suitcase and Mm -hmm. saying, what doesn't belong anymore? What's been um, sort of rattling around in there, knocking against other things that can be pitched? What are some things that that maybe I should put in there for this phase of my journey that weren't in there, didn't seem necessary for the last phase? Mm -hmm. And what happens with a lot of people, and I'll, I'll use different language because I'll use the most common language, construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. Okay. A lot of people, conservatives, get stuck in the construction phase. They're kind of told this is the way that it is, and this is timeless, and this is universal. And there's a kind of fear narrative that says you can't move beyond this because if you move beyond this, it's dangerous. Um, You're moving beyond God. You're moving beyond safety. You're moving beyond community. And so people circle the wagons. And anyone who says something that would threaten the construction, threaten to destabilize it, then is called a heretic. Uh, They're ousted. Uh, They're considered to be unsafe. Uh, We recall people like Rob Bell in in our own movement um, who challenges something. And so you have to protect construction. You can't allow those folks to be inside the fold. So you have to pitch them outside. Uh, Anyone who moves into deconstruction, I would say, there's a kind of, (coughs) there's a kind of, excuse me, there's a kind of, uh, I would say, subconscious jealousy mm, that's uh, interesting. That's, that, that happens with people in the construction phase where they see the liberation of people who are deconstructing 
And I think deep down, they wish they could move beyond it, but they are held by their own tribalism, the constraints of their job or their church or their communities. uh, And so they're, they're kept into construction. Deconstruction is both freeing and also kind of disorienting Mm -hmm. in a way. Uh, you begin to think, who can know what's true? Uh, you you often will wind up sitting in the rubble of your own worldview. And a lot of people get stuck there. Yeah. Uh, or they decide to jettison the whole process. They go, I'm out. And, um, you know, when you go into deconstruction, you can end up being not just post-evangelical, you can be post-Christian. Mm-hmm or post-religion, post-religious, post-faith. You can also be (laughs) post-optimism. You can can become a cynic, uh, a skeptic. You can become angry because you begin to feel like this was all a big waste of time. Somebody wasted my time. Uh, But I think that there are a portion of people who will move forward into reconstruction and they will build something new, a a new system, a new way of thinking for themselves, new to them at least. In some cases, it may be very old. And when you move into reconstruction, you'll find that you you often make enemies both in the construction phase Mm -hmm. and people who are in the deconstruction phase. They get mad that you wouldn't stay and sulk with them, that you wanted to go and do something hopeful something constructive. Yeah. Uh, but I think that, I think that the way the Christian life is designed to be lived best is in that three phase cycle, repeating itself over and over and over again. You might even think of it not as a cycle, but as a spiral Yeah. that moves upward and outward. Yeah. That becomes more expansive, more open, which is why I say to a lot of people that my journey in, 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 as a Christian has not been a journey from right to left or conservatism to liberalism. It's been a, a move from a closed system to an open one. Hmm. I am more open-minded, open-armed than I ever have been before. Yeah. That's been the trajectory of my faith. Yeah. It's, it's interesting even listening to you talk about both people who experience that, that cycle or spiral and then those that experience alongside of you. It's fascinating how much of it is that we want to make it it's purely rational but even in listening to you describe it it's such an emotional thing for people it's so emotional for people on the outside looking in there's so much fear and jealousy to use your word which i think is really insightful i find that interesting what do you think some of the key characteristic differences are between people who go through a similar experience and they they don't make the move from deconstruction to reconstruction. Like, what do you think it is about you that made you able to not just jettison faith altogether, which a lot of people do when they start into that deconstruction phase, or even that their reconstruction is faithless, maybe. What do you, what do you think the difference is between people who are able to make that shift or not? Or am I even thinking about that right? You know, it's a great question. <clears throat> in some ways, it's a question I can't answer because okay. I, I just don't know. In other ways, I think there's one answer in particular that I can I can give you that immediately comes to mind, which is um, o- oftentimes I suspect 
that the propensity for someone to uh, lose their way in the deconstructive phase is related to, directly related to the depth of pain they experienced in the construction phase. It's mm, good. Uh, somebody who was sexually abused by their priest yep. is more likely to feel that there is nothing for them there within this institution. Uh, so they're more likely, I think, to re reject institutional religion because the institution has in such an extreme way failed to protect them yeah. or actively harmed them. Somebody who is gay and was called an abomination by yeah. uh, an evangelical pastor or was put through reparative therapy. I have a friend here in New York who, who's a gay man and was part of an evangelical church outside of Chicago and was part of an ex-gay ministry there. And they performed in a very clandestine way, electroshock therapy uh, on, on him to try to rid him of his um, quote unquote, same sex attractions. Um, that person is far less likely to yeah. stay with it, I think, than somebody who just has a kind of, intellectual disagreement right. with somebody's views on the origin of life, for example, yeah. or the, the, um, the compatibility with science. Uh, I think that, that when you have these deep personal pains, yeah. the stakes are higher. Yeah. And uh, I think that there are probably a number of other uh, examples of those, of those kinds of, uh, of, of things other than just the depth of pain that if yeah. I, I had time to think about it and to, to talk to other people, I could probably identify a, a few of them. I mean, some people, you know, Barna did a big study uh, and named some of those things. And some of it was like, you know, bigotry around LGBTQ issues. Science was one of those. Um, they, the, some of it, uh, some, some people have said their church didn't welcome their doubt. Yeah. So when they were going through deconstruction, right, their out. churches said you're gone. Right. So they were they were kicked out, or they were at least um, made to be felt, uh, made to feel unwelcome. And so I think there's probably a lot a lot of different things that if I had time to think about them, uh, I could probably come up with them. But but the depth of pain I think would be one of the top. What, what is, what is just for you personally, what has been the emotional health journey for you through this? Cause it, it seems to be, I think even in your point about the depth of pain that people have experienced again, so much of this and what I'm hearing from you is emotional in nature, not just rational, not just theological. It's very emotional. So for you personally, has that been have, do you feel like you were raised in a way where emotional health was really paid attention to, or has that been a component as you've sort of journeyed on this spiral? Has that been something you've been intentional about? Uh, well, no, in, in evangelicalism, generally, there is not a tradition uh, of any serious tradition uh, uh, that prioritizes emotional and psychological health. Right. Uh, you know, when Sadly. I was growing up, psychology was to be viewed with skepticism. Yeah. And psychologists were to be viewed with skepticism. I mean, you know, Freud was a four-letter word <laughs> right. uh, when I was growing up. 
And um, that's a real shame. It is. Uh, it, it's a shame, but it is a way, you know, again, we talk about how do you keep people in the construction phase, in the construction phase? Well, one thing you do is you keep them away from people who would reveal the ways in which construction is actually harming them. Hmm. So it's a mechanism that perpetuates the institution. It's a necessary mechanism. So if you, if you train people to be skeptical of individuals with higher education, yeah. right, who have, who have degrees, people who don't, people of different religions, uh, psychologists, um, experts in various fields. If, if, you're, if you train people to believe that those people are dangerous, liars, out to destroy them, and you generate fear, then you can, can continue to kind of self-insulate. Yeah. And so there is a survival mechanism beneath that that I think you, you, you have to name. Yeah. In, in my case, um, I decided to do some counseling in 2012 and an intensive way. Okay. Where I went to another state and spent hours a day in therapy. And that just began to reveal for me a lot of, that was, began a process mm -hmm. of revealing for me a lot of emotional issues. Yeah. And, um, you know, your whole being, yep. which means that your emotions are connected to your mind and your spirit. And so you can't go on an emotional journey without it being a spiritual journey if you're a spiritual person. Yeah. And uh, for me, I would say therapy has been a huge huge part of that, that I don't think I could have psychologically or emotionally sustained this work without that. Now, it's funny you bring that up. My next book is on this topic. Oh, awesome. Um, uh, you know, the, the subtitle of my new book, if it sticks, is going to be The Hidden Sources of Our Emotional Pain and a Daring Path to Healing. Oh, I love that. So I think that we have to have um, emotional, spiritual companions. Yeah on this journey. And I hope that, that the book that I'm writing will at least tell that, that story for me. Oh, I love that, man. Yeah. I, I, I think what I started therapy weekly last November, and I can safely say after almost 40 years of being a Christian, nothing has, has, has produced more spiritual fruit in my life than meeting with a therapist and having a spiritual director and combining those two things. And oh. I think was guilty for so many years of divorcing my emotional health from my spiritual health. And, um, that's been, I mean, I'm not overstating it to say it's genuinely been life-changing for me, um, to have people guide that part of who I am forward. When you reflect on the last, you know, 10, 15 years, whatever this has kind of been for you, who have been some of the most faithful guides, not, not even necessarily just to where you've landed, uh, on specific theological issues, but just who have been your guides in the way that you've thought and walked through this process? Hmm. My counselors. Okay. Um, my counselors have definitely been guides. My freezing. Uh, freezing yeah, I did, did just for a sec. We're back. Maybe I should... Uh... My phone. I don't want to get you cut off. Let me just connect with this real fast. Okay. 
All right, can you hear me now? Can yep, you see me great. Now? Yep. That should be good. Um, <clears throat> I'll start from the top. Well, I've had, I think I've had a lot of guides um, in person, and then I've had a lot of guides um, that I, I don't personally know, yeah, or at books. least I did at the time. Yeah. Um, so the ones I don't personally know are people, uh, or I didn't personally know, I do now yeah. at the time, were people like um, Barbara Brown Taylor and Frederick Beekner. Um, and uh, Richard Rohr, mm -hmm. uh, I tend to be a bit of a mystic. Mm -hmm. And so voices that, that are deeply spiritual but make space for mystical experiences uh, really resonate with me. I love theological imagination. Yeah. We, didn't, we weren't really allowed to have an, a theological imagination uh, as evangelicals. It was more about precision. Yeah. Not imagination. There was no sense of play yeah. when you did theology. And uh, what a shame that that is, I think. What a what a missed opportunity that is. Uh, but people like Kathleen Norris, um, people like Will Gaffney, um, Howard Thurman. I mean, some of these like interesting voices and thinkers um, have helped me. But in, you know, I think for me, it's also been one, people who are wells of wisdom. So counselors, my spiritual director, I've got a great spiritual director here on the Upper West Side, um, who's a Jesuit. Um, my counselor is a, a black woman mm -hmm. who is Christian and brings a totally different perspective to my life that yeah. I value, uh, I value so much. Um, uh, I've, I would say I've got friends, uh, two, two friends that come to mind, my friend Kirsten, uh, who is uh, in media as well and understands my professional life, mm -hmm. but, um, has gone on a journey and has always been a few steps ahead of me. And so she's challenging me in ways that she wishes she could have been challenged. And then, you know, my late friend, Rachel Held Evans, yeah. you know, I'm looking across the room at her book, yeah. um, inspired on the Bible. Uh, which is has been a gift to me. And she was somebody who blazed a trail yeah. for so many of us. So many of us, our careers are a result of the space that she created for us, that yeah. she made for us. So um, I think that there have been a lot of people um, along the way, but it's, and and I will say this too, which which maybe the evangelical in me resists, Another person who's made this possible is me. Um, I have somehow found the willingness to do the work. Yeah. And it requires that. It does. No one, no one is going to come along and tell you what to do. Nobody's going to come along and tell you what step two and three and four are going to look like. Nobody's going to come along and tell you what to do when your parents disown you or, or, or when your friends say that you're, no, you're not Christian anymore. Nobody's going to come along with a, an instruction manual for how to deal with your church when they decide to discipline you or when somebody shames you on social media, you have to figure that out. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of bruises that you'll accumulate. There will be a lot of blood spilled. But uh, I think that is, that's what the work looks like. Yeah. And so to, if, if what you are looking for in this journey is always outside of you, I think you're, you're only going to get part of the way there. It's good. The inner life 
is critical because if 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 you are not doing the work, if you are not one of the most important resources, if you are not cared for uh, along the way, then I think that this journey becomes impossible. Yeah. I think one thing that can complicate this for some people is <clears throat> if you are a person of influence in some capacity, whether you teach, you're a pastor, you are you write in some fashion or form, like when I reflect on my first five years of preaching, I would love to have that back <laughs> um, because I think so differently, not, not even so much about like massive biblical issues or anything like that, but especially on the emotional front. I think that's been an area that I've grown so significantly. I would love to be able to go back and teach and lead differently. And I think that's that kind of regret has to be common for leaders who continue to grow. So how do you think about that in your own life where you're living on this spiral and you are experiencing ongoing change? When you look back on maybe things that you once said, ways that you once led, do you look back on that with some amount of regret? I wish I could do that different. Do you just accept it as part of the process? I'm just curious how you think about that. You know, um, in some cases, what where we are applying regret to failure, mm-hmm. and I think failure or what we perceive to be failure is uh, is not a bad thing. It's just a it's just a um, necessary requirement for being human. Uh, I think in other cases, we're applying regret to what we call growth. Yeah. It's not failure at all. Yeah. It, it, it was like, you know, um, does, does the man on the mountaintop curse the path that led him there? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I was at, teaching once at Princeton Theological Seminary, and one of our keynotes at this um, event was Barbara Brown Taylor, somebody who I've followed, you know, very closely in my writing. And I asked her a question. I said, you know, you, um, you have all these collections of sermons from the eighties and nineties, and I love them. Mm -hmm. But when I read your books now, they're so far from those sermons. Do you ever go back and read those sermons and feel embarrassed? Interesting. And she said, I don't. In fact, she said she was getting ready to put together a collection of sermons and she was going to include many of those sermons in this collection. And she said, I think about life and and previous versions of myself like rings in a tree. Hmm. When I read those sermons, I think that is Barbara Brown Taylor. That was Barbara Brown Taylor. And so in many cases, when I read things that I wrote, or when I think about things I believed or said that make me feel maybe a twinge of embarrassment, I go, man, that was, that was Jonathan. But that is Jonathan. That still is part of the integrated path that led me to where I am today. And so I think of books and articles as a snapshot in time, yeah. a snapshot in consciousness, Um, And I try not to relate to those things with regret, even though I think I relate to them Mm sober-mindedly. 
And I'm able to say, I wouldn't be there today. I'm able to, in many cases, say, I feel really sad that I said that or thought that or said it in that way. Uh, but I, I don't feel regret because if you regret where you were, you have to regret where you are. Yeah, it's good. Because you can't be where you are unless you came through where you were. Yeah. And if you believe where you are is better than where you were, then I think you can honor the places that you've come from, e even if you're happy or relieved that you're not there anymore. Yeah, that's helpful. Well, I had a, I had a whole wide area that I wanted to talk to you about. And we really got stuck in this one area, which I'm really glad because this has been really helpful for me. But I do, I want to close with uh, just a couple of quicker questions, uh, if we could, uh, especially because we're all living in this just strange year. And uh, it's been so, so discouraging on so many fronts. And so I would love to just hear your answers to a few of these things. But like, what's something simple that is bringing you joy right now? breathing do you it's have a first thing, first thing that comes to mind and i can tell you i'll get really practical yeah. with this. i i i do a lot of um, mindfulness yep meditation i started out you know some people have done headspace or you know i started out doing calm the mm -hmm. calm app yep many many years ago and now i i you know i've done i don't know four or five hundred hours probably on the the calm app but now even doing meditation on my own Breathing, returning to the breath, it is a sign that you are alive. Mm -hmm. It's a sign that you are here. It's a sign that you are, in many cases, safe, at least in this moment. Yeah. And so this sort of act of coming home to oneself. Uh, the borders of the self in times of chaos expand rapidly. And so suddenly what happens across town or what's happening on the news affects my sense of self. And so to shrink that world back to the borders of our skin, mm -hmm. to the borders um, temporally of this present moment is an important act. Uh, this morning when I woke up, uh, I woke up late and I was like, oh, I've got to get out of bed. I got to do all this stuff. And I said, no, I'm going to sit and I'm going to breathe. I'm about to take a writing sabbatical and I was writing down last night, like my, my contract with myself. And one of the things I want to do every day is to breathe. Love that. Uh, I do it multiple times a day. I do it at night. Uh, I do it when I, when I start to spiral, when I, if I'm starting to have anxiety or I begin to panic or I feel depressed, I breathe, I return to my breath. Um, some of the things I'll do sometimes to get rhythmically, I'll do, I will do um, counting, mm -hmm. breathe in one, out two, in three, out four. It's just to, to focus your awareness on breathing. Yeah. Sometimes I'll do square breathing. You breathe in for four, hold for four, out for four, four. Mm -hmm. sometimes even hold for four again. Yeah right? Four, 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 and four. Other times I will do breathing in and out longer to get the, a longer, slower exhale. I might breathe in for four and out for six or eight to slow down the breathing, to release the carbon dioxide and to sort of focus my awareness. Um, 
So that's probably the most simple thing that is incredibly profound for me. That's huge. Just very profound for me. What's something that you are reading or listening to right now that inspires you? Mm-hmm. Reading or listening to that, that inspires Could be me. music, anything. Uh, I listen to music every day and, um, you know, I get up and plug in my, I can't say her name, but my okay. A-L-E-X-A. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I have her play music for me, but I'll say something that I'm reading. I've gotten into um, the early works of Elie Wiesel, um, the Jewish writer, uh, Nobel Prize winner, Holocaust survivor, has now passed. And um, Elie Wiesel has uh, collections of books on like Jewish sages and heroes. And many of those Jewish sages and heroes are biblical characters. And I'm really taken with the, um, the Midrash, the imagination that uh, he puts into these profiles of biblical characters. I'm almost done with them. There are maybe four or five books. Some of them are out of print um, that, that kind of collect these reflections. Yeah. And I've been reading those a lot and those have been kind of a devotional work for me. Okay. What's something that you're, I'm assuming the answer might be your new book, but what's something that you're working on or thinking through right now that makes you feel alive? Yeah, it is. It is um, my new book. It's going to be, I think, very personal. And so it makes me feel alive because it makes me feel afraid. Yeah. You know, fear is just a reminder that you're alive. Yeah. And being alive is a gift because the alternative is to not be. Right. So fear is a gift. Yeah. Because fear is a reminder that we're alive. Yeah. And so whenever I feel afraid, uh, and I begin to breathe, I remind myself, sometimes I'll place my hand on my heart mm-hmm. just so I can feel my heart beating. And I'll say, Jonathan, you are here. You are safe. You are alive. You have more to do in this moment. And even if you couldn't do what you need to do in this moment, it would still be worth it. You can come home to yourself. Yeah. And then I sit and I breathe. And so fear, fear is a reminder um, for me. Uh, but that is, that for me is, is how I am trying to think about and process, I think, the moment we're in. Okay. What would be your best piece of advice to the average person who is living through the dumpster fire that is 2020? Um. You know, I think in times of great chaos, if you do not manage the moment, the moment will manage you. Uh, If I ask people, so what's your plan for the amount of news you consume? What's your plan for how you interact with social media? What's your plan for rest and Sabbath? What's your plan for spending quality time with people you love that is not a reaction to whatever's going on in the moment you're in. Most people don't have answers for that. They're living, they're they're basically doing crisis management every day. They get up and they're just trying to do the next thing and to survive the moment they're in. But survival, I don't think should be the goal. 
And so we have to intentionally manage the forces that are breaking into our lives and derailing us yeah. every day. I announced yesterday that I was taking off uh, time from Twitter. Yeah, I saw that. It is, you know, I'm talking to you today. It's August the 20th, yep. 2012, in the year of our Lord, 11.52 a.m. Eastern time. I will not be back on Twitter until October the 1st. Yeah. It's not going to be. And it's a toxic place right now. It's been toxic for me. And I had to make that hard decision. And I'll tell you, it is hard. It I had is. a friend yesterday go, can you promote this on Twitter? I know you're off, but can you, and I had to say no. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody sent me a, a clip to something. Have you seen this? I just didn't click it. And it yeah. was hard. Yeah. Um, so managing those things uh, are very, very important, I yeah. think. And you have to do them every day. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, I'm very thankful for uh, you in general, but specifically how carefully you think and how clearly you communicate more and more. That's a real rarity in our culture, desperately needed. And we didn't get time to talk about specifically to talk about your last book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, but it's it's an excellent book. And I, I, I know within, I think I was through the intro when I put it down and I told my wife, I, I read a lot of books, like many people. There are a lot of books that are helpful. There are a lot of books that are insightful. There aren't a a lot of books that I read that are, in addition to those things, beautifully written. And I set your book down after the intro and told my wife, Tammy, like, this guy is such a beautiful writer. And so it is insightful and it is helpful in the way that we think and how we practice our faith in communication with other people, but it's also just beautiful to read. And so wanted to pay you that compliment because I do think it's such a specific gift that you have. And I really appreciate you taking the time in the midst of trying to write a new book uh, to spend some time talking with me. Oh, the pleasure has been all mine. And, and thanks for having me on.